Hi, welcome to another episode of Project Birdsong. I'm your host, Abigail, and today I have with me Melissa Cameron. Melissa is an organic master gardener and the founder of The Good Seed. She has been featured on websites such as Farmer's Footprint, Florette, and Toronto Life, The Garden Expert on the Tonic Living Podcast, and has been a guest speaker at Allen Gardens. The Good Seed specializes in organic edible gardens, pollinator and native garden plantings, and sustainable cut flower garden designs. In addition, she is the co-founder of the Abermori Garden Collective, a not-for-profit that grows organic food and donates it to families with young children facing food insecurity. Melissa is a plant-based mama who, of four who enjoys being outside in all seasons, hoarding books and good food and wine with friends. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Abigail. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Um, so let's dive right in. Um, I am a total garden novice. I tried when I was, you know, a kid. Um, and I think I always got over eager and like picked stuff before they were ready. So like I would pick a pea pot excitedly and then there would be like one pea in it. <laughs> um, so I feel like I'm starting from point zero. Um, so let's start with you know, what is a required checklist of, you know, what do you need to grow your first organic garden? Absolutely, like cannot compromise on. I'm a minimalist. So I'll go with like the smallest list possible. Okay. Number one, sunlight. Okay. <laughs> and I know that sounds crazy, but lots of us live in treed areas or ha- like have balconies and sunlight is sometimes a hot commodity to find. So in order to grow the most variety of plants, you do need consistent six hours of direct sunlight a day. And that's not to say that you can't grow things with less sunlight, but if you're asking me, you know, what optimal conditions are, the first one is sunlight. Six hours of direct sunlight each day. Yeah, that's going to allow you to grow the most sort of diverse crops. The second thing you're going to need is great soil. So everything starts with the soil, healthy, vibrant, like living soil is going to grow healthy, vibrant plants. And that is sort of the base of everything. Once you get the soil right, growing the plants is actually pretty easy. Okay. I feel like we have to dive deep into that. So really just soil and sunlight. Is that it? That's my, that's my most basic checklist. (laughs) That's your most basic checklist for sure. I mean, things like seeds and water, I you'll, you'll figure all that out. But if you get the sunlight and the soil, right, you are on the right track. Okay. I think this leads us a little bit into my next question because I, I did not understand when I started seeing like garden beds, I always, I guess, as a kid assumed that you just plant right into the ground. <laughs> Maybe that's like totally ridiculous, but I guess that's, I just always assume like, you know, people sow the seeds right into the ground what is the story with garden beds? Is that like a new thing? Do we have to do that because the soil is, you know, already depleted? Like what? Yeah, that's a great question. No, that's a great question. So what we're looking at in raised garden beds is a way to create instant great soil. So if you live somewhere and you have perhaps really sandy soil, right? It's going to not retain moisture very well. It may not have a lot of organic matter mixed in with it. And to remediate that soil using organic and regenerative practices is possible, but it takes a long time, right? It could take three to five years to get it to an optimal space. Um, Whereas if you were to build a raised garden bed 
on with an open bottom to that sandy base, but you know, still bringing in some beautiful, healthy living soil to start with, you get a jump start. Got it. That makes sense. Um, so that's typically what you recommend probably for starting altogether. Yeah. The other thing that uh, having something like that helps you do is maybe if you have some critter issues, so squirrels or raccoons, things like that, having a raised bed allows you to have beginning infrastructure to add things like netting, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, um, which can be more difficult to do with an in-ground garden. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking back to when I was a kid and growing up in the Middle East, I would say the soil was very much like a combination of of sandy and, and clay. It was very red. I think we called it like clay soil. It was dry, red, and kind of very different from what I'm used to here in North America. Um, is that what you're referring to by sandy soil? Yeah. So um, generally uh, a sandier type soil will be sort of in the opposite spectrum um, as a clay-based soil. So a sandy oh. soil, you would put your hands in and it would be sort of loose and uh, granular like sand is, um, whereas a clay-based soil might feel more muddy and clumpy um, and really somewhere in the middle, which is what we call loam, is your ideal soil consistency. Um, and it's where soil organisms kind of live most optimally. So, uh, so this we really want to have living soil. Yeah. So red is actually just, um, it's just about the iron content in the soil that produces that beautiful color. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, I digress. <laughs> We're in yeah. North America now. We have to figure out how to plant for here. Um, okay. So what are the easiest plants to grow getting started? Is there such a thing or do they all have their own unique needs and there's just a learning curve? Yeah. So I think the easiest plants to grow uh, are the ones that match your lifestyle. So before you start growing your garden, it's really important to sort of say like, how much time do I have to dedicate to this project? So if you say to me, Melissa, I just want like the lowest maintenance possible. I'm really busy. That's it. I would say to you, for instance, why don't we start with an herb garden? Mm -hmm. So maybe some perennial herbs like chives, oregano, thyme, things that will come back year after year, things that you can go out, have the kids harvest up a little snippet, use it in your cooking every night, but really they need no maintenance Mm -hmm. besides water and sun (laughs) and great soil, but super low maintenance. Um, If you say to me, Melissa, I really want to dig in. I have a lot of time. Like I really want to learn on the higher end of the maintenance would be something like tomatoes, which require trellising and pruning and are prone to sort of more pest and disease issues and produce a beautiful harvest, but also need a little bit more nuance when growing them. I guess I'm in luck because the one thing that's not on my dream list is tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, it's really about what your family wants to eat too. Mm-hmm. So I have lots of clients who have different interests, but, you know, if someone tells me oh, we don't enjoy eating kale, well, even though kale is a great full season crop, then there's no point in planting it, right? I can't sell you on kale chips if you don't want to eat them or right. kale and smoothies. Uh, <laughs> For beginners, sometimes people like to plant in a themed garden. So maybe you want to grow a tea garden 
and harvest the herbs to have all year round for tea and dry them. Or maybe you and your family have smoothies all the time. So you want to have like a smoothie garden. So you would have like spinach and kale and mint and all sorts of different things like that, that you can use for smoothies during the day. I've been telling my son, you know, that we're working on this project and we're going to, you know, have a garden one day. And he says, you know, very excitedly, you know, about growing things like bananas and pasta and I'm like, <laughs> oh no, we have to go back and educate. <laughs> this is right. The best education is for them to do it with us. So I'm hoping that he gets to do that soon. You know what? Kids are really intuitive gardeners. The great thing about the garden is it's at their height. Mm-hmm. And because it's at their height, they feel really easily connected to it. It's very immersive for them. They love to put their fingers in it, try it. And if you have a picky eater, a garden is a great way for them to expand their dietary interests. Because I promise you, if you plant a green bean and they don't like green beans, they will try one that they grew. (laughs) They're invested. I love that. It sounds dreamy. It's like, you know me, I have a picky eater. I have kids with allergies. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Uh, my dream garden list, let's talk about this. So, I mean, one of the reasons that we're really looking to move out of the city is I've learned a lot about food, um, and kind of, you know, our modern agriculture and just processing and transportation through this journey with my children who do have food allergies, you know, trying to figure out why food can kill them. Um, to be really frank. And, you know, one of the things that really came up is just how far removed we are from the source of it. Right. So by the time we get our food, it might be moldy. It's not as nutritious. It's, you know, it's just not the way our bodies were meant to process it, not to mention like GMOs, pesticides and all of that, which also clearly contributes, even if it's not fully recognized yet. So, um, one of the things that I want to do is really focus on like growing kind of the basics as abundantly as possible, as quickly as possible. I, I realize that, you know, first year, second year is going to still be a serious learning curve. Um, but here's my dream list. So zucchinis, cucumbers, berries, herbs, spinach, green beans, carrots, celery, onions, garlic, potatoes, sweet potatoes, winter squash, and Ideally, although I know this is also going to be hard and take time, is some stone fruit trees like apples, pears, that sort of thing. Is this even like, I have no sense of like the perception of the space required to grow food like this. Like, can I grow food for a family of four like that in my backyard without like acres and acres of space? Like, is this possible? It's just your home garden with, you know... Yeah. So yes and no. I mean, again, it really depends on the conditions of your home garden space. So if you had optimal conditions and you had a half acre or a quarter acre backyard, you know, you could probably get pretty close to what you're talking about. Um, Techniques such as high density planting and really thoughtful design make a huge difference. And of course, like you said, you know, mature fruit trees take a while to come in. Those aren't going to, not going to plant one next year and be harvesting the the following year. Um, So I think it's really important to think about sort of your long-term goals, especially when you're considering a property and think about things like irrigation. Do you have enough water to sort of do that? And when you're building a home, do you have room for storage? Because the way the garden gives is not like, 
a meal delivery box a week. <laughs> when the cucumbers come, you're going to get 12 cucumbers a week for six weeks. And so your ability, for instance, to process those is just as important as your ability to grow them, if that makes sense. So you need to have that time and space to say, okay, cucumbers are coming on hard now. I'm going to be making pickles every four days or whatever it is, right? And then you need to have the storage facility to put those. And the same thing for those root vegetables you talked about and those squash. Yes, definitely grow your onions and your uh, your winter squash and your carrots and even beets and things like that. And you can, potatoes, sweet potatoes, you can keep those for a long time, but you have to have the right conditions to store and keep those in as well. Can so you tell a me lot a little of, bit about that? Yeah. Like, is that so, like just a root cellar? Like what am I... It, you know, it really is, but it's also one that, you know, you can control the moisture in a little bit. You don't want a very humid environment mm-hmm. um, and you want it fairly cool. So um, a lot of new builds right now looks at like giving you a beautiful finished basement, but actually that's not ideal for what we're talking about. You do need that sort of old root cellar space that's dark, clean, dry in order to store these crops properly. So interesting. It's so important. Like, yeah, getting started. I feel like it's so much easier when you have the information when you're getting started than it is to kind of go and reverse stuff or change things, you know, hundred percent. You're not digging yourself a new root cellar very easily. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay. So first of all, I cannot stand pickles. This is another problem. Like if there's two foods I do not like, um, the two foods really that I don't eat, don't touch, don't go near are pickles and tomatoes that are fresh. I use crushed tomatoes, but I, that's a recent addition to my life. Um, like in the Mm. past few years where I've gotten over my fears, which is why I don't feel the need to grow tomatoes because I really like when I'm thinking about this, I'm not thinking about living completely off the grid, like a hundred percent, never be able to reach civilization. So I'm thinking realistically foods that will bring me joy that I'll enjoy, you know, preparing, using, um, that'll make the most impact, you know, financially and health wise and all of that. And if, mm-hmm. you know, buying crushed tomatoes is something that I continue to do, like that really makes sense to me. Um, but for example, with cucumbers, would it then be a waste to really focus on them as a crop? If I'm just like, I just want them for like the two months in the summer, or do I just plant one, one plant and then just, you know, use it in that way? Exactly. You want to balance it out. The other thing you might think about, and this doesn't apply to cucumbers, but it does apply to lots of other things is a really good quality dehydrator, because that's also another way to sort of save food that uh, you might be looking at like herbs. Um, Mm. And I'm thinking for some, I'm thinking for some of these also just like, you know, for some of these, the freezer makes total sense as well, right? Yes. So most people who are homesteading or doing some version of homesteading own at least one chest freezer. And that's because again, you have a large crop of strawberries that comes on. You aren't going to eat them all fresh. You're going to need to flash freeze them and then store them. Um, and that's totally normal and purposeful. So uh, how do you, you flash make freeze? Sure you... Berries may they ask <laughs> since you sound so, so knowledgeable on the topic. <laughs> when you're when you're freezing, um, when you're freezing for long-term storage for things like berries, like say you have blueberries, mm-hmm. you want to take just like a regular cookie sheet from your oven. And make sure the berries are nice and dry after you've washed them and cleaned them, lay them on that cookie sheet, freeze them that way, and then go ahead and put them in a freezer bag or a Tupperware or something. So that way they don't clump and stick together and you get that nice sort of frozen berry. 
the advantage of freezing the fruit that you grow is that you're freezing it at peak ripeness, right? You're harvesting something when it is ripe on the vine, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to the grocery store fruit that is quote unquote fresh, but may be picked at a very immature state when it isn't its most nutrient dense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that matters so much. Right. Very interesting. Like in taste and quality. I mean, I'm sure it'll Sorry, yeah, no, I was just going to say to, to, to build on that, I would challenge you. I do not eat grocery store tomatoes. Okay. I will eat a tomato out of my garden any day. And I bet I can get a variety of cherry tomato that you would love. Huh. It's really modern tomatoes are just from the grocery store are watery and gross, sometimes acidic. They have terrible texture. Tomatoes you grow at home are completely different. This reminds me of my neighbor in Israel. He's this Yemeni guy. And he used to always tell us this. He used to say like, he's like, I remember what tomatoes taste like. And this is even in Israel where like the food is, is probably a little bit closer to what it used to be like. And he would tell us that about tomatoes. The funny thing is, is where I lived, it was very like, um, there was this huge valley and it was completely like on I don't even know what the word to be used here is, but it, like, it was just wild. Right. So you can mm. literally grow and find, like, go down there and find tomatoes growing like naturally, um, like in the wild, maybe somebody ate a tomato once upon a time and dropped the seeds. And then there was just a ton sure. of bushes and the kids used to go pick them. Um, there was, yeah, there was, there was a lot of food and there was also a lot of snakes. So <laughs> it was, it was a trade-off, a risk to go, uh, forage like that but it was definitely felt a lot more I don't know you felt closer to nature and it was just it felt healthier as an existence which is I guess kind of something I'm trying to recapture for my kids yeah I think also when you think about um think about animals and how they eat right animals are very smart and very intuitive and so for the most part animals eat very cleanly in the sense that they're eating a berry when it's ripe off of the bush and there's no processing time, right? Like it goes bush to tummy. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, they haven't brought it in and refrigerated it for seven days and then frozen Mm -hmm. it and then defrosted it and then cooked it. And like eating that way, eating so close to the plant that you, you grow, uh, I think has a ton of benefits. Yeah. In every way. I mean, like really, I've I've noticed this more and more in the past few years. If I buy berries from the store, I mean, the chances of them being moldy are high. Like it's pretty scary that we're just eating and we just accept that. And it makes sense because it's been transported in, you know, varying degrees of heat and cold and then moisture seeps in. And then you put it in your fridge, you try to eat it two days from then. And there's like, there's visible fuzz. There's no way that's good for us. Yeah. I also think it's just the same thing. Like we don't even know when it was picked or what conditions it was grown in. And, you know, it's like, if you get a recall on your lettuce for salmonella, well, lettuce does not breed salmonella, right? Chickens breed salmonella. So clearly there's been some kind of contamination on the farm level and you just have a lot more control of that at home. Um, in your own space, you can look at exactly what kind of soil you want. So if you don't want to use any animal-based manures, for instance, you don't have to, you can use 
worm castings to amend your soil. Or if you want to create your own compost and add that back into your soil and have this beautiful closed loop system, you can do that, right? If you have your own chickens and you eat their eggs, you know exactly what you're feeding those chickens. So there's just a greater level of connectivity, but also a greater level of knowledge of what's in your food. And I mean, isn't that how we really did live for thousands of years? Like this is a new thing being so detached from, you know, not just our food, but our entire, like everything we consume, we're detached from our consumption. It used to be what we produce and now it's just consumption. Yep. And we were buying foods, as you mentioned, that we don't know their provenance. They're packaged in things that are full of toxins like plastic wrap and plastic froze like plastic freezer bags and plastic cellophane. And, you know, yeah, um, all of that is leaching into the food that we're eating and into our bodies. It's, it's honestly shocking when you look at it. I know a lot of people are still so far removed and it's just, once you, once something prompts you and, you know, you start digging in, like you realize that at the very least, these are questions that have to be asked. Yeah, I think you'll start to feel that way when you grow your own garden. Um, you'll start to look at all the negative spaces in the city where there could be gardens and there aren't. And you just think, why aren't we growing food here? Why aren't we growing food here? Like it, it, mm-hmm. it really, it really shocks you that we could be using so much more public space to grow food. I mean, and let's also talk about, right, like the, uh, the monoculture of growing just grass on your lawn. <laughs> well, this is it, right? you know, there's no need to be growing grass. It, it seems like the peak of the decline of civilization that we think this is a great idea. <laughs> we're not growing food to eat and provide for ourselves. Instead, we're growing grass that, you know, is there. And I think it gets even crazier when you think about the money that people are willing to spend on their lawns, having them mowed, making sure they're perfect, you know, removing the most nutritious thing in their lawn, which is a dandelion, which Mm -hmm. is actually a very nutritious plant that you can eat and they want to get rid of it and not just get rid of it, but like inject it with poison to get rid of it. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking. Well, hopefully this is, uh, hopefully there's a revolution starting. I'm hoping. I, I think there is, I think, um, I think it's a wonderful, thing to learn this type of self-sufficiency it makes you feel so much more empowered in your everyday life and it makes you so much more appreciative uh, at the dinner table um, when you eat something you've grown and you truly see how much work goes into that first zucchini (laughs) Uh, you know it's 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 inspiring and it's it's also humbling Would you say, I have like another question, would you say this is like that growing enough food to maybe not sustain your family, but let's say you wanted to grow 50% of what a family would eat. Would you say like, that's almost a full-time job? Would you say it could be accomplished in, you know, three hours a day? Is it mostly just in certain seasons that you have to be focusing on this? Like how it's very cyclical. So how does that work in terms of can it be done? Are people over or underestimating the amount of time? I think it can be done. Uh, I think it's good to have a team. <laughs> so if it was one person, I would say the workload is hard. And I think mm. this is maybe this great, beautiful metaphor for everything that we're talking about, but we need to live in community with 
each other and with our plants. And so if you think about the fact that maybe you need two other families to come over and help you build your garden beds, you know, that work is going to feel so much lighter. Um, we need help. We need to work together. So I think that it is definitely doable. I think you have to start the season very early, probably January or February, researching garden planning, buying your seeds, and then it moves into starting your seeds indoors. So they're ready to go out when the time is right. Then you move through the active garden season, which as we discussed, includes preserving your food because that's important. And then in the fall, you know, it starts to dwindle down a little bit more and, you know, maybe you take November and December off, but that's it. <laughs> that's amazing. It's such a good picture. And, you know, I, I, I really think that we're meant to be working like this and living like this. So um, it's definitely really helpful to have a little bit of a perspective on that. Um, is there anything else that you would add for, you know, a total newbie gardener like me, who's ready to plunge in almost while working on it. Um, but also I'm a little bit anxious. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing really. Yeah. Trust your gut and go for it. I think, um, the only mistake is not starting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, as soon as the land is there, we'll get going. <laughs> yeah. I think there's, you know, you're going to learn along the way. Um, experience is very, very important. Sure. There's lots of books you can read or YouTube videos you can watch and all of that's very helpful and can help you feel empowered. But, you know, remembering that you want to see living soil to have living plants. So that's really important. You see worms and you're moving that soil around and you see lots of activity in there, lots of squiggly things moving around. That's a good sign. So I think you, I think you'll succeed and I think it will exceed your expectations. Okay. Super exciting. Thanks again for coming on today and uh, talking to us about this. Thanks, Abigail. Okay.